0: Hey everyone! If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeYop.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us and it's free. That's M I K E Y O P P.com. Thanks! Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you're listening to Coffin Talk, Exit Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. With me today from Phoenix, Arizona, is Mr. Glenn Few. Hi, Glenn. Welcome. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm actually really excited to interview you. I just mentioned this in the pre-interview interview, but I don't know that much about you yet. I've spent a lot of time with you in our local writing group, so... Um, You piqued my interest because a long time ago you mentioned that you worked in law enforcement and then more specifically you had mentioned that you worked in prisons and so for the purpose of talking about how our views on death affect the way we live our life, I thought there was no one more perfect than someone who has worked with the quote unquote rehabilitation business, which is something uh, I care a lot about. So um, without any further ado, do you want to explain how you got into that and maybe... Give us some more details
1: that I left out? Well, um, uh, let's see, I would have to go way back, uh probably to um, the period after my first divorce. Um I had a sort of an episode. Uh I withdrew uh in to a sort of a man cave, I guess is the best way to put it. And I started spending a lot of time alone, very much alone. I went to work. Went home, that was it. I started watching TV a lot in the evenings, that's about all I did. And one night I uh, was listening to a new or watching a newscast, and the talking head on the newscast started saying something I disagreed with, and I started arguing with him. And he wasn't paying any attention at all to what I was saying, and just got angry and angry. I stood up and I was shouting at the TV, and um, all of a sudden, I just realized that I was shouting at a TV. I thought maybe, well, the first thing I thought was that I needed to get a social life. Uh, The other thing I thought was that I'd like to find out why it was I was doing that. And so that got me interested in psychology. I started taking psychology classes. I was in the Air Force, still in the Air Force at that time.
0: Uh, real quick, just for a reference for our listeners, is this like the nineteen seventies or oh
1: yeah, this was in nineteen seventy six and I had been in the air force for several years at that point. Uh, and I was working as what they call an information specialist, which was kind of like a whole different lifetime. It was actually a propaganda specialist, better. Way. I started taking psychology classes and when I got out of the air force and got a took a job at night at a local forensic mental health facility, uh, which is another, I guess that's the modern way of saying institution for the criminally insane. And um, that got me sort of into the prison system. It it was a prison. It was was actually run by the uh, Florida's division of uh, behavioral health services, but we we had a lot of referrals from the prison system. Uh, We had heard that it was a good place to do time, and you know they would do suicidal gestures and all that sort of thing. And my original intention was to, well, find out a lot about myself. My original intention was to, uh, well, help mankind, which is you know kind of the general ambition that any psych major at. Um To fix people, that was my idea. Was to fix people. Uh, I didn't sufficiently realize at that point that first uh, people have got to want to be fixed. And then people fix themselves. And I eventually, roundabout way, ended up at the, in Arizona, another state, working in the Arizona Department of Corrections, which is uh, a misnomer because the Arizona Department of Corrections never corrected anyone or any. Department of Corrections never corrected anyone, but I did observe some people correct themselves.
0: That's actually, I'd love to get into that second little tidbit you said. So I'm going to save that for a little bit later in the interview. Uh, for now, I want to establish a little bit more about who you are as a human, because uh, while I'm sure already anyone listening can tell that your point, uh, you're you're on point and you're funny and you're perceptive. Uh, there's obviously a part of you that also deeply cares and is deeply like aware of something about existence that I was attracted to when I first met you. Um, I remember just thinking this guy gets it. So with that said, I'm gonna ask you, what do you think I mean when I say this guy gets it? What does that make you think?
1: Um, Well, we would have to define it. (laughs) I don't know, it is such a big, big subject and I believe that everything, all of it is related. And if that's what getting it means, okay, I guess I do. I was deeply influenced in the process of taking psych classes. I was deeply influenced by a course I took in uh, a physics class, which I took only because uh, I had to do a physical science requirement for my major. And the uh, name of the class, I can never remember whether the name of the class was Physics for Poets. And the text was physics for skeptics or if it was the other way around, but in any case, um, was introduced to the concept of uh, quantum mechanics, quantum physics, subatomic reality, everything is related, uh, in one way or another. Um, and it immediately resonated with, uh, some things, uh, uh a theology, if you will, that I had been exposed to in. When I had this station in Thailand in the Air Force, uh, Buddhism, um, and I started reading a lot of uh, transdisciplinary type things. Uh, uh, the Tao of Physics by Fritjof Kapra. I pro- probably mispronounced his name, but that's the first uh, really interesting book I read on that subject uh, relating Eastern philosophies uh, and Eastern religions to uh, quantum mechanics. So I think uh, that's, that's what getting it means to me, is just realizing how much I relates, really relate, even if it's, well, especially at the subatomic level. And our consciousness is, I think, uh, if you're looking for a ghost in the machine, that's where to find it.
0: That's exactly what I wanted to talk about with you, which is consciousness and um, what you call the the link between matter and the spirit, so to speak. So I guess my first question for you very specifically would be, do you believe that you have a soul?
1: Um, I believe I'm self-aware. And I believe not only that, but that my awareness extends throughout the universe. I mean, there's obviously no way to prove something like that, but yeah, I believe that. Um, And if that's having a soul, yeah, I, I believe I do.
0: I mean, the linking question that I would ask after what you just said would just be, uh, what do you think happens when you die to your consciousness?
1: Um, I believe it returns to the universal consciousness, uh, or maybe just joins it, because um, for a long time, many years, I thought, well, I don't remember uh, having been aware uh, before I was born, so I just automatically assumed upon that basis that uh, there would be nothing after death but a but, uh I nowadays I can see that it doesn't really follow. I mean, uh, each of our consciousnesses may be generated at the point of birth uh, and may, you know, each of our consciousnesses or souls may well uh, join a cosmic consciousness. That's one of the things Hammerhoff talks about, by the way. He does a very good uh, YouTube uh, video, a TEDx talk on the nature of consciousness, and uh, he calls it Bing, he calls consciousness Bing, and he says it may be Bing all the way down, and you we know, may, um, there may be a, a cosmic well of consciousness that we join or rejoin at the, at the time of death, and, you know, I'm certainly not ruling it out, I can't say I am absolutely certain of, and I'm not absolutely certain of anything except that I'm not absolutely
0: certain of anything. Do you believe that there's morality to the conscious experience?
1: Morality in the sense of, well, there's empathy, I think.
0: Well, no, no. I mean, uh, very specifically, do you believe that there is a right and a wrong? Sure. And so how how would you explain that cosmic consciously? Okay, I
1: think think the basis for morality, uh, the basis for awareness of right and wrong is... Uh, being aware that others are conscious, exist. Um, a solipsist, I said that wrong, solipsist, someone who believes that uh, nothing exists outside of their own awareness, uh, I believe it would have to be essentially amoral because they wouldn't believe that, uh, that you know, the only, I, I suppose suicide might be, uh, the only a moral act for a solipsist, but really if the solipsist believes that nothing else exists besides his own awareness, how would he be accountable? So, you know, even that would cancel itself out. I don't think there would be, there's any morality possible for a solipsist. Um, and narcissism is, is pretty much the same thing. Uh, and I met a lot of narcissists uh, working in the prison system. Uh, a lot of sociopaths, uh, people who believe that you know other, other people to whatever extent they even exist at all, their awareness were just you know, their toys, their tools. Uh, everything was about them, and anything that ever bad, ha- bad had ever happened to them uh, was not their fault. It was something somebody else had done, or, you know, due to circumstances beyond their control. Uh, that was its A wrong, that's as close to evil as I can come to defining it, is just being unaccountable, being irresponsible, Um, being unaware or uncaring that other people feel pain. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with that. Yeah,
0: no, no. And I'm letting you kind of... Like you're not rambling at all. you're you're finishing thoughts, and I'm kind of letting you go because I'm fascinated by your thoughts. But I do have, you know, some pretty direct uh, questions to ask you based on what you're talking about. I mean, there's there's two two levels I want to continue the conversation on. The first level is I want to talk about the reality of our prison system and criminals and the idea that like there are quote unquote, evil people because I think you have, like anyone in law enforcement, um, a very unique ability to talk about that because when you spend time like you have in a career with it, it's very different than like watching TV, having one or two interactions with a criminal, et cetera. So, you know, my life, like I've been touched by crime, but I didn't indulge in in the world of criminals. So you, you're actually a pretty, not pretty, you're a very nice person, you're a good person and, and you're pretty warm. Uh, how did you not like let that part of you die when you were around so much? Um, well, well, I mean, because you used the word evil, or you said as close to evil as you could come to. So, like, how did that affect you seeing these people who are like actually what people fear?
1: Well, uh, my personal experience, I think that working in the prison system, on one level, it, it kind of I did shut down somewhat emotionally over the years. Just you know, kind of developed a shell just to you know do my job but um, I think the long-term effect of working in the prison system was kind of opened me up. That's one of the experiences, uh, it's a formative experience in my life when I first started working in the Department of Corrections. I I think I was much more narcissistic than I am now, much more self-centered. Okay, I completely lost my train of thought there. I'm sorry.
0: Well, that's okay. You you answered the question really well. Do you... um... It's kind of a weird jump, but you'll, it'll make sense. Uh, you're married currently, and you spoke of a divorce earlier. Do you have any children?
1: Yes. I have uh, one son by a previous marriage, uh, a stepdaughter. Uh, my, the, the lady that I'm presently married to, that I've been married to for 40 years, uh, and by the way, I she was the first woman that it ever occurred to me that I want, wanted to marry, uh, when we met 50 years ago, uh, I fell very much in love with her, and you know, I tried to get her to marry me. A large part of my motivation back then was that we were both in the Air Force, and that was the only way we could stay together is if we got married. And it had never even occurred to me that I ever might want to marry anybody before I met her. Um, she did not want to get married. She she says she fell in love with me too. I think she was much more in love with the Air Force. She was in love with, you know, being independent. As she says kind of uh, facetiously, so many men, so little time. Uh, and she had the odd notion that uh, I think she was actually trying to get away from men when she went in the Air Force, which I think is just, I, I have no idea she could have thought of that. Um, I kind of, I think it's much plausible that I was trying to get away from women. I you know, Kind of a, um, well, not a bad relationship before that, but definitely one, a relationship that was very much tied up with the drug culture. Going into the Air Force for me was, uh, one way of getting out of that relationship. And was also, there was a lot of other factors involved. In it. Anyway, um, she was the first woman I ever wanted to marry. And after a while, when she continued to not want to marry me, um, and she was at another base by that time, uh, I found someone else to marry. It was very much on the rebound, but I didn't know that. I didn't realize that at the time, consciously, despite the fact that uh, the two of them were very much alike, even down to they drove the same model of, they both drove a 63 Volkswagen Bug um, painted white. Um, my wife at, in, at present, a present, lady I've been married to for 40 years, uh, came back to the base where I was stationed uh, two or three years after uh, we got married. Oh, by the way, she says, and I'll have to take her word for this. She says that on the very day I called her to tell her that I was going to be married to someone else, she was just about to call me to tell me she'd marry me after all. Uh, you know, we have endless debates. Uh, well, speculation, more like. We agree that there's no way to know how that would have turned out. You know, we might have looked happily ever after her, or, or knowing each other as we do now, we can see there's a certain potential we could have disarrayed each other. Um, but as it turned out, we did not get married. Uh, I married someone else. She never got married during the 10 years that we went our separate ways. But she did come back to that base uh, where I was stationed, and uh, she and I had. Become friends by that time. There was something about the relationship that neither one of us wanted to give up, despite the fact that I'd gone on to marry somebody else, and she had wanted to marry me. But you know, obviously, she gave up the idea. Well, she gave up the idea of wanting to marry me immediately after I told her that uh, I was marrying somebody else, because you know, at that point, even if I, even if she had told me and I had, you know, broken off my engagement, she wouldn't want to marry me then, because wouldn't want to marry a flake like that. But. uh, (laughs) <laughs> she never quite said that, but I'm pretty sure that's how she would have looked at it anyway um, she and I were friends by the time she came back to the base and I took going to meet my wife at the time and they got along famous uh, in fact, by the f- end of the first hour, my wife at the time and and Nancy, my present wife were you know better friends I think than uh, than my first wife and I ever became. And we're, you know, we're still all good, all good friends. So we do have, my first wife and I have a son by that marriage. Uh, Nancy had a uh, child. Uh, she never got married, but she did have a child as a single parent during the two years that uh, we went our separate ways. And then in 1981, um, I was uh, going through my second divorce at that point, which is a whole other story. Um, I think you're familiar with some of that, brought some of that to the writer's room. Um, but I got back in touch with Nancy and uh, found out she had gotten out of the Air Force. And as she puts it, uh, the Air Force was her only my only true rival ever. Um, I believe that. So I came here to Arizona, that's why I'm in Arizona, and we got married pretty soon after I got here. Um, and we've been married ever since. And we also, we, uh, several years later, we uh, had a daughter. So I have two biological children and one stepchild who doesn't remember a time when I wasn't around. So, you know, she's my daughter too.
0: And so did having children affect your perception of... Morality slash your like job as a conscious entity, or is it just all random to you?
1: Well, I would say random. i It concentrates, it focuses your it focuses your empathy, focuses your projection of the future. But uh, as far as uh, being empathic, as far as being aware that other consciousnesses in the universe exist, I, you know, I'm fair. I'm more sure that my favorite cat has a soul than I am that some of the people I met in prison system did.
0: <laughs> let's let's pause on that let's actually like extrapolate that a little bit um because i'm really curious about this side of your take um and again i could talk to you for more than a uh, half an hour about this um because i want to hear your opinion as well but i really want to tie this into like how did your experience working with criminals and and again it's not criminals it's not like people who did drugs people who sold drugs it's not about that it's more about what we're really talking about which is this like inherently bad person, this person who like you're saying is worse than your cat <laughs> can you can you explain any of your thoughts or theories about that
1: well I'm not absolutely sure that anyone is inherently bad if you mean bad from birth that sort of thing like uh, George thurgood's song uh, uh, bad to the bone um, I, I'm not sure that any i some sometimes I had the feeling that there was no power on earth that was ever going to, as you say, rehabilitate someone. In order to re- be rehabilitated, you, you have to be habilitated to begin with. And I think that some people are so brutalized, uh, and it may be genetic. I have no idea. I have no, uh, notion as to the extent to which, uh, uh environment and hereditary play a part in this, but some people become I think irretrievably sociopathic. Um, at least uh, they can't be fixed by any present, presently constituted uh, Department of Corrections, for sure. And th- the reason I think that Department of Corrections are uh, the whole term is a misnomer is because I believe that people have to be. It doesn't matter what resources you throw at a problem. It uh, doesn't matter how well it's run. doesn't matter how efficiently it's run. It um, doesn't matter how enlightened the people are who are running it, except insofar as I think they recognize that people either fix themselves or like, oh, they don't get fixed. And if you make it, uh, you, if you provide the optimum environment for fixing themselves, I think you could do some good. It's one of the lasting things that I took away from the prison system was just an acute, very sudden, I guess, adrenaline-driven heightened awareness of other people's uh, intentions. Um, it suddenly was very clear to me that this man was more afraid of me than I was of him. It kind of kicked me into a sort of a, I don't know, time seemed to slow down and there's this, this, and the fear was replaced by a sort of, I don't know, it all, it almost felt like an endorphin thing. I could see how people get get addicted to it. Uh, there was just this sudden feeling of just, yeah, I know who this guy is. And um, I said, uh, well, thanks for the warning. He, he, you know, he looked at me, he says, I'm going to do it sometime when you need to look and I said, well, uh, you know, if that was your intention, you may have made a mistake because I think you just made sure I'm always going to be looking. And he's just kind of like his eyes sort of roll around his head and he just then started to laughed a little bit. He says, well, maybe I won't kill you after all. And I said, and I said oh, OK, well, thanks for that. He says, but I might. I said, well, again, for that, too. He says, no. Yeah. And he just, you know, walked away. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was my first, yeah, really, uh, that was my first experience in, in any kind of institutional environment.
0: Yeah. And actually it's a great way to kind of bring things into a, a glorious union of, I mean, I just feel like we've talked about so many things in like tangential ways, but I kind of want to like center it into some sort of, takeaway for our audience. So I would like to ask you, since you do have children, um, and I know you specified which ones were biological and which ones you raised, but either way, they're all children to me. And uh, since you are obviously going to someday pass from this earth, what do you think is the imparting advice you would want to give to not just your children, but to other people who are going to be here after you? Uh, How would you help us? Just have an easier time here on this planet. What would be your advice?
1: Well, um, be care- very careful who you listen to. And just because someone is rich and famous doesn't necessarily mean they're wise. I, uh, In preparation for this interview, I would like to get this in somewhere.
0: Yeah, please. Go ahead. Please, please.
1: And a quote from uh, Orson Wells. Now, I have a great deal of respect for Orson Wells as an artist. But he said something once that uh, I think is just, uh, I, I don't know, I'll let you make up your own mind. Orson Welles once said, we're born alone, we live alone, we die alone. Only through our love and friendship can we create the illusion for the moment that we're not alone. Okay, to me, that pronouncement seems a subspecies of solipsism, Unless you believe that everything that you perceive is only a figment of your imagination, why not believe in the reality of our experiences and not being alone, no matter how unique the details of our individual lives may be? We all die. And if we don't find a sense of commonality in that, an ultimate kind of togetherness, I believe we're simply trying. So that would be my takeaway. Just you know, realize, okay, you're going to die, but so is everybody else. And none of us knows for sure what's going to happen on the other side. Uh, I completely reject any notion that uh, uh, we're, you know, that some of us are going to uh, suffer eternally in hellfire. Because that's not even consistent with my reading of the Bible, much less my my uh, uh, conception of common sense or justice. I mean, you know, for, if you don't believe that, uh, if you believe that God is just to some people and not merciful, well. Even justice demands that even someone like Adolf Hitler is not going to suffer eternally, maybe millions of years, as uh, just recompense for all the pain that he caused. But, uh, you know, I would want people to get rid of the fear of death, the, the fear that it's only going to happen to them, because that is narcissism, that is solipsism. Uh, if the idea that the universe dies with you well even if it does so what uh you're not going to know about it anyway so what's the difference um
0: wow that that was profound and i'm going to be thinking about that a lot um so wow mr glenn few from currently phoenix and uh originally i believe florida thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin uh once again this is Mike Oppenheim and you have been listening to Coffin Talk, Exit Interviews with the Living and we will see you soon Walking alone Walking alone